We are back in Mark this morning. I invite you to look there with me if you have your copy of God's Word or a Bible in front of you. Mark chapter 2. This is Mark chapter 2 beginning in verse 18. Uh, Listen now as I read God's Word for us. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new one from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word uh, now. May it not be my words that I speak, but only yours. Uh, may you work in us by your spirit through the word as, as your means by which you extend grace to your people. Please bless this time we have together now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're always fascinated by whatever's new. Uh, new technology, uh, new phones, there's, there's a new iPhone, it looks exactly like this one, except it's brand new, uh, there's nothing really different about it, uh, except I guess it's made out of t- titanium, or at least part of it, so that's cool, I suppose. We're always excited about something new, new methods, uh, trying to find the best way to do something. Any kind of industry or business you're in, I'm sure you go to all kinds of uh, professional development about the latest and greatest, whatever it might be. Uh, that's a temptation for us in the church as well, that we, uh, we're always thinking about what's best. What, what do we need to be doing now that's new, that can reach the next generation? What new philosophy of ministry do we need? What new church planning methods are there? Uh, you name it. But not everything that is new is it's all that it's cracked up to be. And the great irony of this text is that Jesus, he, he brings, the, the new that he brings is actually life-changing. It actually is revolutionary. So much so that we, we must embrace this new life and this new covenant that Jesus brings. But the greatest irony is that this new covenant that Jesus brought, well, that was 2,000 years ago. And so it's not so new anymore And now we're trying to find something else that's new because this Christianity thing seems so old and outdated. But what's the tragedy of it, the great irony of it, is in our pursuit for this new, whatever that is that's out there, we always end up finding the old. We end up finding ourselves right where the Pharisees were in our passage this morning. It always brings us right back to there. But Jesus, he brings the new and lasting change. And that's where we need to plant ourselves. That's where we need to to set our flag and the the new life, the new covenant that Christ brings, that he has ushered in. So, so far in our 
look through uh, Mark's gospel, and in, in chapter 2, we've seen conflicts between Jesus and the religious leaders. They've been growing. There's conflict over Jesus' healing of the paralytic man and how he used that as an opportunity to say that he and he is, uh, he is able to forgive sins. He's able to give us what we truly need, our greatest need, which is the forgiveness of sins. Then we saw conflict arise when, when Jesus calls Levi the tax collector. And he goes and he eats with him and with other sinners and other tax collectors. And we see how Jesus is the friend of sinners. He's the friend of the outcasts and the looked down upon in society. And then in this passage, conflict continues to get worse. As now Jesus, he's going to challenge one of the distinguishing features of of this Pharisaic religion. Of the the pious religious life of, of these Pharisees. Their practice of fasting. All this is going to culminate next week as Jesus takes head on their understanding of the Sabbath day and how they have misunderstood it. But this morning, the question is about fasting. And so what are we supposed to understand about fasting, how to practice it, what to think about it? Well, actually very little from this passage because Jesus' concern is much more about what lies behind their practice of fasting. Rather, he's wanting to use this as an opportunity to teach something uh, much greater and of much more value. And that is that Christ, he brings the new. Christ brings the new, so we must not hold on to the old. Christ brings new life, so we must let go of the old life. Christ brings new covenant, and so we must not be beholden to the old covenant to its laws and its regulations. Fasting is only one of the many areas that is impacted by Christ and the new covenant that he brings. And so as we consider this conflict over fasting, we're going to learn a lot about this new life, this new covenant that Christ is ushering in. And so first, we're going to consider the setting and the issue and the question around fasting. Second, we'll consider the deeper problem of holding on to the old then third, the solution that Christ brings by ushering in the new. So those three things, the setting, the problem, and the solution. The setting of the story is uh, that the Pharisees and the disciples of John, they're, they're fasting. And so this is John the Baptist. This is the, the same one who baptized Jesus in the Jordan. He has his own followers and his own uh, people that have made themselves disciples of John. They're, they're dedicated to John, and they, they still are at this point. So we have these, these three groups. We have the disciples of the Pharisees, we have the disciples of John, and then also the disciples of Jesus. And the Pharisees are, of course, they're fasting. This is something that they took pride in, how often they fast. We see in a parable in Luke chapter 18, and we read that parable last week where the Pharisee is he's praying to God and, and he's, he's saying how proud he is that he fasts twice a week. This is part of the, tra- uh, the tradition that had been established. And we see that the disciples of John are also fasting. It's interesting because these groups really didn't like each other. You'll remember that John, as he was baptizing, the Pharisees came to hear from him and see what his ministry was all about. And he cried out to them, you brood of vipers. He said, he, he warned them of the wrath that was to come, that was against him. 
That was against them. So the Pharisees, they were, they were no big fans of, of John or of his teaching or of his disciples. But they were happy to point out when they were doing something that they agreed with. And so they're, they're looking to Jesus and see, even, even John, even his disciples, they fast. So what's going on with you? Why aren't your disciples fasting? But here we have a clear example of, of where their religion had exceeded beyond the Word of God. Far from requiring fasting twice a week, there was only one day where they were required to fast, the people of God, the people of Israel. That was on the, the Day of Atonement. There are, of course, other times where it would be appropriate to fast, times of mourning, times of grief. But only this day was required, only one out of the whole year, where the people were to, were to fast or to afflict themselves, is, is what it says in Leviticus, where it gives them that instruction to go without food on this day of atonement, to consider that they are completely dependent upon God and upon His salvation. They were to fast on that day. But it becomes clear then that the Pharisees and the requirements of fasting had far outgrown God's own word. And we see right here a danger that is always present among God's people. That we can be quick to add our own laws, our, our own ideas, our own traditions on top of what God's word, God's word alone requires of us. And fasting itself, it can be one of those things. And I, I do want to make sure that uh, I'm clear that uh, fasting is, uh, it can be a good thing. It can be a way that we can worship God and seek Him. We, we see in Acts chapter 13, the, the young church, it's fasting and it's praying as it sets apart Barnabas and Saul for their work as missionaries. There can be times and situations where fasting can be appropriate as a church, as a family. Uh, individually, it can be a form of worship. But sometimes fasting is just fasting. For whatever reason it might be, weight loss, health, uh, whatever it might be. In the church, broadly speaking, uh, in our, our country, the American church at times, we can try too much to add religious value, value to anything and everything. So much so that we neglect and forget the simple means by which God is gracious to us. The, the instruments that God has given to extend His grace to us. So though fasting at times, it can be a proper way to, to worship or to to seek the Lord. But even more so is the feast that we have, the table, the Lord's Supper that He gives to us. It's a means of God's grace. And so instead of pursuing the religious experiences in, in new and different ways and various different things, we ought to return to the ordinary means that God has given us to be gracious to us. His Word that's read and preached our prayers that we lift up to Him, the sacraments, the baptism, and the Lord's Supper that we take uh, here weekly. God will bless these means. And these are the things that mark the New Covenant people. But it's in the contrast between these New Covenant, these means of grace, and the Old Covenant way of thinking exemplified by the Pharisees. Their Old Covenant way of thinking, it shows us this problem that's here. And that leads us right into the, the second point this morning, the problem that they have. 
that they're holding on to the old. That's the problem. This was the deeper problem behind all the questions, all the, all the concerns about fasting. Fasting was just the, the deeper issue, or it was just a symptom of the deeper issue, rather. But just like a good doctor, Jesus, the great physician, he can diagnose what the actual cause is, and he can, he can get right to the cause and, and, and fix what's going on deep down, not just address the symptoms. And so he addresses the deeper problems by first raising this question for them in verse 19. He asks them the rhetorical question, can, a wedding, uh, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is, is there with them? It would be absurd. It's absurd, says Jesus, that the guests would fast while, while the bridegroom is there, while they're at the wedding. Of course, that, that makes sense. I know we have a, a couple uh, weddings uh, coming up uh, in our church, uh, a couple, uh, two different couples that are, are getting excited to be married next year, and I'm sure there's a lot of planning that's going on, uh, a lot of things to get ready for, a lot of things to consider. Uh, part of that planning is the reception. Now, I'm, I'm not sure all the decisions that you've been made, uh, that you've made about the reception, what it's going to look like, but I can be pretty confident that you're not inviting your guests to come and, and fast with you at the reception. Maybe I'm wrong. Nate and Ellie are thinking about it. Oh, I didn't think of that. Maybe that's a good idea. No, of course not. The wedding day is not for a fast, but it's for a feast. It's full of food and drink and joy and celebration. That's what a wedding is for. A wedding is for celebration. And that is because, ultimately, our weddings represent our relationship with Christ. It rep- represents the wedding between Christ and His bride, the church. And now that Christ is here, He's among His disciples. He's, he's ushering in the new covenant. You know, it's starting. The kingdom of God is at hand. So not only should they not fast, but it would be inappropriate for them to do so. And this is a great tragedy of the Pharisees and of their religion because the fulfillment of all that they have been waiting for is sitting right there. Fasting was supposed to be a reminder, a a way to, to physically feel our dependence, ultimate dependence upon God. And now God himself in the flesh is sitting right there, the bread of life that could satisfy their every need. Yet they instead... They rejected him. They could have joined in with the feast, but they rejected him. They held on to their own legalism. They wanted to do things their own way, not God's way. So Jesus, he corrects them. Of course the wedding guests will not fast while the groom is with them. Of course that's the case. And then he gives them a couple more parables to drive this point home, to show the error and the the legalism of the Pharisees. So first he says in verse 21 that, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth. No one takes that new cloth and sews it on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. So maybe you've had the unfortunate experience of shrinking something in the dryer before. That's what's going on here. Or imagine a, a large sailboat, if you would. Imagine a sailboat with the large sails. And this one large sail has a a tiny little hole in it. 
And so what they do is they take a, a brand new piece of cloth, a piece of fabric, and they, they sew it and they attach it right over the hole. But what will happen over the next days and weeks as water splashes onto that, onto the sail, or it rains, then the hot sun, it dries it up, and that cycle repeats over and over again, what will happen? Well, that piece of unshrunk cloth that was sewn over that hole, it will begin to shrink itself. And as it shrinks, it'll tear the old fabric away. And so a new, larger hole is made. Everyone here in this story, there's so many we've talked about in the fishing industry. A lot of the disciples came out of that industry. They would have understood exactly what Jesus is saying here. This is what happens when Jesus, he brings in the new. In the same way, the new is incompatible with the old. He goes on and gives them another parable. Verse 22, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. My parents are in uh, wine country right now. They're in uh, Sonoma Valley. They're, they're visiting out there, and uh, they're, they've already been sending a lot of uh, amazing pictures uh, of their trips, uh, all the places that they're visiting. And uh, some of the places they'll be visiting are, are the wineries, and they'll be able to hopefully do some tours of those. And, and as they go through those tours... Uh, that's going to include some information about the, the fermentation process, how, how you make wine. Now, during the, that process, during the fermentation, there's expansion that happens as gas is produced. This is the exact same process. The science of making wine has not changed over the past 2,000 years. It's the same exact thing that happens. The chemical reaction occurs to ferment wine in the first century just as it does today. What's different is the bottling technology that we have today was not there in the past. So they used goat skins. And they would take uh, goat skins, they would try to, as they did so, to keep it as one whole piece and they would, they would sew it together. They would tan it partially, but they would keep it in one piece and they would fill it with new wine. And the goat skins then, they were naturally elastic. They're able to stretch and expand with the new wine, which is unfermented wine, by the way. That's what we mean by new wine. It hasn't been fermented yet, so as it's fermenting in the skin, the skin will expand with the wine as it expands. But if this new wine, if this unfermented wine is poured into old wine skins, Skins that have been already used, they've already been stretched out to the max. What will happen as the, that unfermented wine then begins to ferment and to produce gas and to expand? Well, of course, it'll explode like an overfilled water balloon. It can't hold what's being poured into it. The purpose behind all these parables then is the same. The old cannot hold the new. Neither is the new simply a patch over the old. But the new that Jesus brings, it's, it's fulfillment and it's transformation. And the Pharisees' insistence upon their legalistic tradition and religion is incompatible with the gracious new covenant that Jesus brings. And here's why the teaching, this teaching from Jesus is so important. This is why it's so revolutionary is because there is an old covenant, because there is the law of God, and God's law is good. 
It's good because it's God's. It's good because he's the author of it. But there is a wrong way in which we can associate and relate ourselves to God's law. And we can view obedience to God's law as a means of earning God's favor. That's the idea that if we would just do this or that correctly, then then God would be gracious to us. And this is the heart of all false religion. This was the error of the Pharisees in their pursuit of religious obedience to the law. This was their legalism. Legalism, it's the false teaching that obedience to God's law is required in order for God to love you, in order to, for God to save you. When this false teaching, when it takes root in the person, it's devastating. And it either leads to pride or it leads to absolute despair. So if God's love for you is dependent upon the level of your own personal holiness, then either you will look at yourself and you'll say, Wow, I am incredibly holy. I'm doing really well. I fast twice a week, give 10% of my income to the church. I do this, that, and the other thing. I don't drink or chew or go with people who do, whatever that saying is, right? Well, congratulations. You are a Pharisee. That's what Jesus is saying. So if you're basing your salvation on, in God's love for you on your personal holiness, either you're going to have that pride like the Pharisee, or you're going to throw yourself into utter despair because you'll look at yourself And you'll say, wow, I'm a terrible sinner. There's no way in the world God could love me. Or you'll say, this burden is just too much. There's no way anybody could obey like the way God requires. I'm just going to reject it completely. And so you see this heart of legalism, it's it's deadly because it misunderstands both God's law and God's grace. But by nature, we, we tend to be this way. By nature, we tend to be legalists because we want to do things our own way. We want to earn our own way. We want to take pride in ourselves, even to the point that we would rather live in despair than humble ourselves enough to admit that we need grace and to receive that grace. In other words, we will always desperately hold on to the old. That is the problem. That's the problem that Jesus is addressing. And thanks be to God that Jesus, he brings the solution. He brings the new. And that's the last point we want to consider this morning. But Jesus says that new wine is for new and fresh wineskins. The old is gone and the new has come. So what is Jesus, what is his teaching here? What is it all about? Far from being a response to just a question about fasting and the, the pros and cons and the right ways to do it and the practice of it, Jesus is teaching us about the completely revolutionary life that he brings. 
I've quoted Sinclair Ferguson uh, quite a bit already in this series. I'm going to quote him again, and I cannot recommend enough his short uh, devotional commentary on the, on the Gospel of Mark. Uh, it's published by the Banner of Truth. I, I absolutely recommend it. But he writes that the way of the Pharisees with their legalism and their man-made traditions and the way of the gospel of grace cannot be harmonized. They are mutually incompatible. Jesus' teaching on godly grace and forgiveness for sinners destroys the old cloth of the Pharisees and bursts open the old wineskins of their religion. I love that imagery. It's the exact imagery that Jesus uses in these parables. The new life, the new covenant that he brings, it's so powerful, it's so potent. You can't contain it within the old structures that used to exist, but it'll burst open, it'll burst through. This is what Jesus is doing. I skipped over uh, this verse on purpose, but I want to jump back to it now, verse 20 where Jesus says that the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast on that day. Jesus, he quotes from Isaiah 53, that prophecy in Isaiah of the suffering servant. And in verse 8 of chapter 53 of Isaiah, he says that this servant is one who will be taken away. Jesus quotes from Isaiah here, the same wording, the same phrase. So right here in this parable, as he's talking about the new covenant, Jesus is foreshadowing his own death, which will bring the new covenant realities to his people. The kind of death that he will die for his people. We've talked about the, the, one of the big theme verses of Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this is what he's promising, and he's foreshadowing that he will do for his people. He'll be taken away from them. This is how he's going to bring the new life, through the sacrifice of his own life as the ransom for his people. And just like the new garment, just like this tears itself away from the old, so in Jesus' sacrificial death as he dies, we're told that the curtain in the temple is torn in two. Again, the same word is used there. In Jesus' death, the dividing line between God and man is destroyed. He has fulfilled the law's requirements on your behalf, and now we are given new life in Him. And this is the incredibly good news, the incredible good news that's given to us in this passage where He talks about that wedding feast and the guests of the wedding. Well, we're not the guests of the wedding, but we're the bride of Christ as His church. We're His very people. Jesus was taken away and he was nailed to the cross so that we would never be taken away from him. And he went to the cross where we were supposed to go so that he could secure a place for us in heaven where we could never go on our own. And so what does any of this have to do with fasting? Well, like with everything else in the law, 
it reorients these acts away from a means of earning God's love to a way that we can return love, our love to God because he has first loved us. That's what this does. It reorients us. Obedience to God's law, it's a good thing. It's a very good thing. But only when it is put in its proper place, not as a legal demand for our salvation, but as an outcome of our salvation that's already been worked in us, as the fruit, as the evidence of what God has done for us. This is the salvation that He has already accomplished. This is the new life that Jesus brings. It's a life that's lived by gratitude and thankfulness for what God has done. It's not a life of doing out of fear for what God might do to us if we disobey. That is the solution Christ brings to the problem of the legalistic heart that clings so desperately to the old. Christ, he brings the new. And the new bursts forth into our lives. We're always fascinated by the new. But again, the great irony is that at this point in history, this new covenant, this this new way of life that Jesus ushered in, it's older now. It's 2,000 years old. And now we often want something new from that. But the even greater irony is that as we pursue something new from what Jesus has done, we will always end back at the old. The old, dead legalism of the religious leaders that Jesus spoke so firmly against. We can try as hard as we want to find new ways of connecting with God. uh, New ways of of, uh, having uh, some kind of personal piety or, or religious experience, new ways of church planning, new philosophies of ministry, whatever it might be. We can pursue those if we want. Or we can dedicate ourselves to Christ. And we can keep the message simple, which is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We can put our trust in Him who lived for us and died and was raised again. And we can find grace in His simple means that He's given us in word, sacrament, and prayer. We can cling to those things. We can cling to Christ because He has brought us new life. And so let's let go of the old. Let's pray. Jesus, you bring new life and you have given us new life in you. Help us not to grow discontent and keep us from searching for purpose or meaning, satisfaction, or life in anything or anyone else other than you. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus our Lord. Amen.